0: Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies.
1: Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 239, and I'm your host, Ryan Tansom. On today's show, we have David Hauser, who is a former founder of Grasshopper, a virtual telephone service, which sold for 165 million in cash and over 8 million in stock to Citrix. And I'm super excited to have him on the show because he's a metrics master who not only knows how to build the cell, but he also knows the value and the return on the right kind of marketing. He invested $12 million of his own marketing budget into one radio ad. And by the way, he was only doing $30 million in revenue when he was doing this. That got him an efficient return on investment. David breaks down the key metrics he uses when evaluating businesses and strategic planning for scaling so that way you can see how a really great focused marketing effort will net you the clients you want to secure the growth you need to get you where you want to go. We talk about the goals, failures, and opportunities met along the way as David became a serial entrepreneur and how his ability to keep his learning high and wide lensed helped him stay focused and strong in new markets. Enjoy this episode with the Metrics Master that shows that if you understand your customers' your business model, and how to acquire those customers based on your marketing and ad spend that you can scale your business and accomplish your wildest dreams. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode with David.
0: Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value. Giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes.
1: David, how are you doing, man? Good, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I was super excited, and we just hit record because as we were, <laughs> you started talking about. The one of the big things that you learned, and I, maybe we just kick it off with that. You know, what is your setup right now? You're an investor in a lot of businesses. You sold a company that was doing some crazy stuff, and just even the radio ads. And we can get into a lot of this. Some really crazy stuff that you've learned. So Maybe just kind of give us the cliff note version of you and your background, and we can uh, unpack the whole thing.
2: Yeah, so I'm most notably known for building Grasshopper from zero to thirty million dollars a year in revenue. It was a virtual phone system for entrepreneurs. Um, we had hundreds of thousands of customers, and ultimately, after a short twelve years, uh, sold the business. But learned a lot along the way, um, built a great team. Um, some people I still work with today, and you know, obviously done a lot of other things, but that's kind of the the more notable success. Also built Chargeify, sold that business. Probably has made. I've made probably about a hundred angel investments or so, um, mostly in tech, but also in other industries. And today, I also um, have a CPG company and, uh, Invisalign practice in Boston and, you know, lots of other stuff, but, um, you know, really we we are getting much more back into software as a service now.
1: So, and because like you and I were just chatting and and we can kind of just even pick it up where we left off before we hit uh, record is, you know, as you've been investing, how how did you become an entrepreneur? And then you you just kind of started talking about what the end in mind. So maybe just right off where we, where we left it off, kind of give, give that big takeaway because we don't have to get too far into the technical uh, weeds of grasshopper, but this whole concept and this this playground that you're now playing in, I think all these concepts relate.
2: Yeah, so I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. I, I'd never had a real job. And you know, I think it all really came for me uh, in school when I was little. I, I struggled with reading, uh, writing, and I was way behind my class. So for me, being an entrepreneur was just proving everyone wrong that I could be successful, right? And you know, I, I knew that pretty early and just did all of those things, right? Um, I think grasshopper, you know, was I'm trying to think there was probably four or five other businesses before that, but grasshopper was their first real business. Like mm-hmm. a lot of employees, a lot of growth, all of those things. And we made lots of mistakes, lots and lots of mistakes, right. Over a 12 year period. But luckily, you know, we, we
1: learned and grew over that time. So what, what was the market opportunity? Like why, why did grasshopper stick and like, and you get some crazy growth. So maybe whatever the, 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 uh, normal metrics are that you kind of give everybody the context of the actual scale that you guys are at?
2: Yeah. So we grew very quickly. Um, The reason it worked is we were solving our own problem, right? So um, we weren't out there like looking at opportunity generation and, you know, how do we think about what other people like, we're like, no, we want this phone solution for us, for other businesses. No one's making it right the way we wanted it, packaging, pricing, all that stuff. So let's just do that. Right. And that I think really led to a lot of the success the other factor, too, is as we grew, we were very careful about doing all the jobs ourselves. Right. So before we hired anyone for anything, me and my business partner, one of us or both of us did that job. Right. So I literally answered customer service phone calls. Right. <laughs> like I like all of those things before we hired. So we knew exactly the type of person we needed. We knew the skill set. And we also got really quick feedback. Right. Because it wasn't like a layer down or someone else or it was us. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. In terms of scale, I mean, we grew to our first million dollars very quickly and then scaled very fast after that, pretty much doubling every year, if not more. So,
1: you know, in the early days, going from a million to two to four to five, like pretty quickly. So, so many things there. First of all, growth is expensive. So how did you fund this? (laughs) Yeah, the cash flow, the cash flow question, right? Like where was it coming from and how many, how many sleepless nights did you have? (laughs) Lots of sleepless nights,
2: um, probably not for that specific reason. I mean, two, so there's two factors. First of all, like we're talking 15 years ago, right? Because we sold it roughly three years ago, it took us 12 years. So somewhere in that range, may, maybe a little bit even before that, I'm trying to think the date we started, but you know, call it 15 years ago, ads were way less expensive, right? So there was no Facebook. Um, so we were buying Google AdWords before it was Google AdWords when it was on the right? And it was, you know, one cent. <laughs> right? So that allowed us to get that engine started. That's um, awesome. Yeah. We then got 30% of our customers from referrals. So we kept that engine going, right? The other thing that we were very careful about was making sure we had a negative cash cycle, right? So for every dollar that we spent, we had already pre-billed that, right? So unlike, you know, spend it, you know, net 30, but blah, 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 blah like We were doing the opposite, right? We were pre-billing and then with our vendors, we were getting 30, 60-day terms. So we had revenue in the door for something we didn't pay for maybe 60, 90 or longer
1: later, right? So the beautiful that gave us cash. Float. The beautiful float, right?
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Why does Warren Buffett like uh, insurance companies? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So I, I, let's just go, David, to the, the comment that you're making right as we hit record, because it... I think it'll provide great context for the rest of the conversation you know you sold the business obviously we were talking about that but like the big takeaway that you were just about to say
2: yeah so the the biggest takeaway like everyone's like like, what'd you learn from selling the business you know what would you do differently you know all these different things the biggest learning we had was the most value in selling a business actually comes from just operating a good business right like there's no tricks there's no special things right like But like everyone's like, well, how do you shorten due diligence? How do you reduce risk? Well, just run a good business, right? Like have good financial statements that are understandable and are correct, right? And don't have to be dug through. (laughs) Like systems and processes to make sure revenue is recognized properly and expenses. Like all of those things are what an acquirer gets hung up on, right? Even if they love the business and whatever, it all just raises red flags and risks along the way, right? Mm -hmm. And so like, if you're doing those things all along, you're just running a good business and you get value from it, from a sale, right?
1: So I want to relay just like this philosophy that I've kind of realized is one of the big problems of why people don't do this. Cause I've, you know, been spending seven years in this space, like, and I don't know what your experience is, like listening to all your, your other entrepreneur friends. I think we run a lot of the same circles and People don't get this, and I kept going like, "Why is that?" And so, David, what I what I realized is that so many people, we, my dad and I, were absolutely guilty of this too, solving for annual income because we didn't understand what created value and how this company could be worth something like a financial asset. And then what happens is your behaviors just get like vortex down into distributions, perks, and then like not wanting to reinvest because you're that's an old like it, the cost is like you're not taking the money home. And you yep. don't know when you're ever going to get it back, so you always end up taking it home. How did you like? Does that make sense? First of
2: all, and then yeah, I mean, I think the key there is like people think of it as income. I think you have to step back and understand how do I strip out the income I have to have to live, and then think about the rest as growth capital, right? Now there are periods of time where you may take more out because growth capital isn't needed, but I think if you think about it always first as growth capital it sets up the right mindset, which is, look, like, end of the day, like, if, if I need $100,000 to live, like, I, I got to make sure I make that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, anything above that, I shouldn't worry about, right? And what I should be thinking is, how do I reduce my tax burden to as close to zero as possible by using my
1: money for future growth? So where in your 12-year journey did that click And you might've been, and there's kind of maybe two different ways to answer that, David, like you might've been doing that, but not knowing you were doing that. So maybe like, when did you start realizing you're doing it and changing your behavior? Or like, when did it click that you were doing it? Yeah. I mean, this, it
2: never clicked because it always happened. Like when we started, we just thought this way, right? Like, Hey, we need to make enough to grow. And both of us were in college or just out of college. Right. So we didn't have a lot of overhead expenses, but we quickly realized, okay, like, Can take enough to live comfortably, right? And quite honestly, like even at the end, like I wasn't making a ton of salary, right? Like that's not what I I didn't want to make money on salary, right? I wanted long term growth. So, at doing 30 million dollars a year, I think my salary was like 175, somewhere in that range, maybe 185, right? And I lived in the house I wanted, I had the car I wanted. I could travel when I wanted, but like, what else do you need other than that? Right. Like there's not a lot.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. Oh, it's so interesting, man. I've seen people where, like, you know, the company's worth 60 million, take your 50% for partnership, take away your debt, pay your taxes. And they're like stuck in million dollar lifestyles. They literally can't sell their business for 60 million because they're stuck. Yeah. It's like, how does that happen? And it's because they didn't understand this from the very beginning. They got trapped almost. Right? So, and,
2: and really, what's really important there is like there's no additional happiness in that delta, right? Like we're just spending money for no reason, but it's not it's not towards happiness. So like I spent a lot of time opti- optimizing for happiness, which has very little to do with money. And the data is very clear: once you can live comfortably, however you define comfortably, there there is no delta in spending more in terms of happiness, right? Happiness comes from other pursuits. I was just going to say. So, what is your
1: definition of happiness?
2: Yeah, so for me, ha- happiness is doing what I love every day, having freedom to do what I want, where I want, having routine. I love routine, right? So I'm um, being able to know that I can go to the gym every day and know that it's on my calendar and locked in and no one can disturb that, right? Mm-hmm. That's something money can't buy, right? Like I have the same car that I had 10 years ago. Like, I, what am I going to do with a new car, right? But I am willing to spend exponentially for that freedom, right? that control of my life, and then also for experiences. So like one of our family core values is experiences over things, right? Like I'll spend ridiculous amounts of money for an experience for me or for my family
1: compared to buying a thing, right? I love it. And, and what I find interesting is that this is an awesome context and lens as you you know think about the decisions you made in your business. It's like trying to, it's so hard to determine like what other entrepreneurs are solving for because you, know, you don't know what other people's definition of happiness or what they're trying to optimize for then So then everybody defaults to the numbers. What's your revenue? How many employees you got? What'd you sell for? And it's like, what does that all mean though? So how did this mindset and what you were solving for, for happiness, David, like maybe give us a couple of ideas as you're growing the business where you're using that as a decision tree for hard decisions?
2: Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, I didn't start optimizing for happiness until after I sold the business because I wasn't happy, right? So I had to make a change. While running the business, I was generating that happiness without even thinking about it, right? Like I was doing something I loved. It was valuable. I was returning things to other people, right? Like our core purpose at Grasshopper was empowering entrepreneurs to succeed, right? Like that's something that meant a lot to me. So every day that gave me happiness. When that was taken away, which is a weird way to say it, like when I sold the business, but it was taken away. I had to rethink that, right? And spend a lot of time and I t- did a 200-hour teacher training to be a yoga teacher, right? Like I did all sorts of things to learn and grow to find what
1: happiness meant, right? Super interesting, man. I'm going to keep pulling this thread because this podcast David used to be called Life After Business cuz after my dad and I sold, I was miserable. <laughs> I was like <laughs> I was like, it was like, I was literally in the flow state every day, like 90% of the time, which you don't realize it and you become addicted to that high. And then because you're constantly growing as a person, solving challenges with a team. And then all of a sudden that whole thing is gone. Yeah. So like the reason I started that, and I'm curious that we're jumping right to the end and we can go back, but what, like, how people don't understand when they're just solving for the number for that exit that they don't understand this flow state and how they're making impacts and how to tie that with the value and their options like explain to us how did that happen to you like you know like did you when you sold did they have does your was your role not there or like when did this when did you find out that you weren't happy anymore i guess is the the question yeah. so th- this was a, a really
2: big challenge because we had done all of the right things in the business where we built a management team. You know, we, me and my co-founder weren't needed in the business, right? So like, that's all the right things to do, but it was also emotionally hard because the acquirer said, we don't need you guys, right? Like it actually is more valuable for us for you to leave than us to find a high paid position with a title to make you feel good, right? So we'll pay you more to not stay, right? So it was a benefit to them, but emotionally that's really difficult. Right, because it's literally ripped out like closing next day, gone. Like, oh shit, I need to change my email address. Like, my identity was the guy who who ran Grasshopper. Like, all of those things just disappeared overnight. There was no like interim step. Right. Did you see that coming? (sighs) Didn't think about it. Right. I had spent a lot of time talking to people who had gone through large exits and, got some really great advice. This was not included in it. (laughs) Um, Like great advice, like don't rush into things, you know, as an entrepreneur, you want to, but take some time, you know, even if you just dabble in a bunch of stuff, but just don't rush in, you know, think about the complexity of having additional capital. Like it's not all roses. Like it takes additional work, time, effort, stress, right? Like there's other
1: problems. Um, So I got other advice, but not this piece. It's so interesting, man. And like, and I, and again, like one of the passions I have is like, why is this? And like, you know, I've had people on my show netted hundreds of millions of dollars and then like, they're more miserable than they, than ever before. And it's like, and and, and it's weird because, you know, you say that almost, almost a little, what's the, what's the phrase tongue in cheek, because, you know, you got so much money, but you can't buy happiness. Right. And like, no one really tells you this. And is it because you don't like, people don't know how to harvest that asset without doing the, the ripcord? Or like, what is your perception? Because you probably explored this or have you explored this topic since you sold? Yeah. So I think there's really a few key areas here. One is for me emotionally, I've found
2: that it's very, although you have lots of money, right? Not having a salary that pays for your life is emotionally difficult. Right, even though the interest can pay for it, and you know, blah blah, blah you can take four percent a year and be safe, and all these other things you're told, right? But emotionally, it feels incorrect, right? Like for me, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm I, supposed to be working, <laughs> and, and I think that that's a, an emotional challenge that a lot of people struggle with. Um, the other is there is a lot of additional overhead that comes with a lot of money, right? So let's call that over ten million dollars, right? Um, over ten million dollars, there's just a lot of stuff, right? So now you start thinking about estate planning and kids and wills and trusts and all this stuff. You think about taxes. You think about insurance and risk, right? And like, I, I think the the emotional shift from wealth generation to wealth preservation is very hard, right? And a lot of people struggle with that. I struggled with it for a long time, and I still struggle with it today.
1: Is it because Because technically, you were worth the exact same amount before and after the closing. And most people don't realize that. Is it because it's just in a different, the wealth is in a different form, and it's different versus active versus passive? Or like, what was the? I mean, I guess there's a difference between liquid and not,
2: right? And on paper, it's very different, right? Like, yeah, on paper, a company's worth whatever, right? But you don't think of it that way, right? You think of it as like, I'm doing what I love and I'm getting a salary to live my life. Right. I don't equate value to it. And the grander scheme of people don't equate value to it as well. Right. But when it's in a stock account or something like that, it's just a hard figure. Like it's a number. Right.
1: And, and this is, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's because I've taken this many years as like with all these interviews to realize that like, if, entrepreneurs understood the value of their company while they owned it, David, then they would go, okay, where do I reinvest to get a return? As well as I have an idea that I will harvest this at some point. I just don't have to harvest it right now. And just like, it's way more complicated. People make it way more complicated than it's needed that it needs to be. And it's just a, like you said, it's a mindset that, and I don't know if it's the lack of experience with selling, selling companies is probably part of it or I, any, any thoughts or as you talk to other entrepreneur friends that may or may not have gone through an exit? I don't know. I mean, so I've sold multiple companies now
2: and maybe I'm just not good at learning this, but uh, it's, it's kind of the same each time, right? Like it's, it's still different, right? The difference between having it as a company or having it as liquid, you know, assets and, you know, maybe I'll learn that the next time.
1: I don't know. Um, but so far I haven't. <laughs> So let's, let's go back to kind of the part of the, the grasshopper journey. So 12 years and you got a negative cash cycle, man. I can go back to that as your, as your fund in the business, what were the, what were things that helped you guys grow that were maybe related to your business model would helped you scale because you know, different business models allow for different kinds of scale and capital. What, what were some of the things that you think as you look back, were uh, big needle, uh, needle movers.
2: Yeah, so there was a lot. I mean, I think at the highest level, we were always very on board and our first focus was paid marketing, right? So like everything we thought about was how do I grow because or how do I spend more money to grow, right? And that meant like looking at the metrics, all sorts of stuff. We also always took 10% of our marketing budget, which became very large. I think you said earlier, you know, we did all these radio ads you know the year we sold we spent 12 and a half million dollars on terrestrial radio one cha- like one you know channel right so um a large marketing budget we, we kept 10% for tests because we always knew that we had to find the next thing right so if we had relied on only adwords we would have died right mm-hmm. if we had relied only on adwords and you know satellite radio we would have died right so like to find those things, if you're not testing with dollars, you never find them, right? So I think that really accelerated us forward. How did you track whether the tests were working or not? So, so test budgets never had to have a return to say yes to the budget, but we always wanted to track the data coming back, right? So depending on what it was, some are direct, right? Like if it's you know display ads or whatever, like that has a more direct return some are based on DMAs, right? So looking at you know how our typical order volume is within zip codes. And then if we target certain zip codes via postal mail or radio, what does that change look like, mm-hmm. right? And then also understanding the channel, right? Because uh, radio, for example, you have to spend a certain amount to get the scale to drive the CPAs down low enough, right? So you have to know that in the test period, your CPAs may look unattractive, but you know that others that have succeeded at large scale had CPAs in this range at test scale, right? So there's a balance depending on channel.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Because I mean, I can't imagine like, it, what's the Jim Collins, it's uh bullets and then the cannonball because you're not yeah. going to come out of the gate spending 12 million on radio ads, especially if you can't track it specifically like uh, Facebook. But I mean, we,
2: we started small, we were spending $50,000 a month on satellite radio, right? And we're mm-hmm. like, okay, this is really working. So like, how much can we ramp that up? Okay, what's the next step? Well, the next step is you do a regional test to see what it looks like, and then the minimum spend for a national test is twelve million, right? So you do it in increments.
1: Well, and what's interesting too, and this is you know because you're the the SaaS based business too. I mean, scaling the just the the capital required to scale a SaaS company versus a manufacturer buying inventory and all that. You know, like there's I literally just got done with a couple of interviews. We talked about literally there are growth caps on certain industries where you just say you shouldn't grow more than 20-30% because you'll go bankrupt. So yeah. kind of talk about how you were able to spend that much time on fueling growth because you were able to scale the operations with it. And so I mean, re- recurring reputable
2: revenue is is a game changer, right? And um, when you then have gross margins of 80-85 you know, plus percent, right? The, the, that scale problem is no longer a problem, right? It's, now it's where can I spend all of this money to continue growing, right? You get into a, a different problem, which is at a certain scale, you're only replacing churn, right? Unless you make step changes, right? So, you know, if you have 2% churn, you know, you have to replace a significant portion of your customer base every year, right? And if you have half a million people, right, that number is a large number, well, and, give and us,
1: give, uh, let's peel that back a little bit, because I love it, um, and specifically in the SaaS businesses where they like they calculate the lifetime value of a customer, client acquisition costs, and the churn. Explain kind of how you were assessing those metrics and like how the decisions might have changed as you were looking at those numbers.
2: Yeah, so obviously, you, you hit on the key ones, right? So the first one is churn. And I, while churn is important and it has to be monitored, I think it's actually very hard to change. Um, significantly. So you need to pull out the portions that are changeable, right? From a SaaS business. So if we were at 2.5, you know, we could get down to two, but we weren't going to get to one, right? right. Like there, there's just stuff that happens, like small businesses go out of business. Mm-hmm. I can't change that, right? Yeah. Um, so I need to make it actionable for the team, which is okay, first strip out all the people that went out of business. Okay, those are just gone, right? I can't fix that inherently. Mm -hmm. What can I do with the other group of people, right? Was it a problem setting up? Was it engagement? Was it things like that? So what are the behaviors I can change, right? Lifetime value is the other side of that coin, which says, how much can I spend on my uh, marginal CPA to acquire more customers, right? I need to acquire a bunch of customers via word of mouth and cheaper channels to keep the engine going. Mm -hmm. But what am I willing to spend on the margin to add more people to catch
1: up on churn? right? Yep. And so how did you get to those numbers? So like and maybe it was like assessing the lifetime value of a customer and say, hey, we make this much over each customer and this percentage we're willing to spend in these channels or like, how, how did you guys go about doing that?
2: Yeah. So lifetime value, initially, we just had a very crude way of, do, of doing it. But over time, we developed much better ways with, you know, survival curves and, you know, actual calculations based on, you know, a lot of data sets, Right. Um, when we had BI tools and all this stuff in place, right? As those things, you know, got better, um, that number got better over time. But I mean, honestly, like it, so if we had a thousand dollar lifetime value, um, I, I would have no problem spending half of that on a marginal CPA. Now, not my total CPA cost. My total CPA cost has to be far lower, but my marginal, that's fine, right? And especially in testing scenarios.
1: Clarify marginal versus total client acquisition cost?
2: Yeah. So, um, my total acquisition cost, if it was, you know, $35 say, right. Um, that's all channels, all acquisitions. So total cost divided by number of acquisitions, right. A number of new clients. And that includes all sorts of channels, including SEO and whatever else, right. That's my blended CAC, right. Mm -hmm. As people refer to it, the marginal is, so for every additional person I want to get on AdWords, How much more do I have to spend? And as you get closer and closer to the maximum, the marginal goes far, far up, right? Which is a very good indicator of how saturated that channel is, right? Mm -hmm. So like, as you push the numbers on Google AdWords, the marginal CPA could go from $90 to $500. Got it. And the problem is people don't see that, right? Because they're looking at, oh, I went from 90 to 94. Well, yeah. You went to 94 across a large data set mm-hmm. you need to
1: look at the the margin mm-hmm. that's super interesting so well first of all like where along the journey did you start learning these things you know was were there resources that were helping you out as you're looking at these things or was it just you know survival instincts what was some of the things that you were tapping into
2: so i mean luckily for me i was brought up in a, a household that cared a lot about learning So learning to me has always been important. I don't like actual school learning. I've never been all that good at it. But for like learning to learn um, is something that was always given to me as a gift, right? So I think inherently we just tried to always grow both as founders, Mm -hmm. but also as a team and executive team. Um, So that meant we brought in coaches, right? We brought in educational content. We read books. We, you know, we went to conferences. We did programs with Entrepreneurs Organization. We, we did all of these different things to have wide exposure mm-hmm. and then make decisions to come down. Right. So one of the things we put in place, you said you uh, interviewed Gino, right? So you know, traction and EOS and all that stuff. We had a system very similar to that mm-hmm. um, from Vern Harnish, right? So like it, all the same stuff, different terms, like. Those types of things helped us go much further than we could have, Mm -hmm. but it
1: only happened because we looked wide from a learning perspective. So as you guys are like, you and your team are growing and not only growing the business, but you're growing personal development. I mean, sounds like you're having a lot of fun. You're making a lot of money. So where did things like, what changed? Did you like look up one day and say, okay, what's going to happen? What's next? Or like, what was that thing that tried to, that started to pull you towards, Hey, there should be some next step here. Nothing. We we had no <laughs> no expectation to sell. We
2: didn't want to sell. Um, we had no exit plan, right? Like we both went to Babson College, so like we built a business plan because we were supposed to, which had like <laughs> exit scenarios. But like we didn't think about exit plans ever, right? Being bootstrapped, we didn't have to. We didn't have to report to anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the sale process was much more. You know, they came to us. Uh, we said no a bunch of times. It got further and further down that stage. And people are always like, you know, how do I know when to sell? Right. And I I look at this very simple metric, right, which is if someone's willing to pay me more and significantly more than I think it's worth while I have near perfect information, I have to think about it. Right. Like no one in the world has better information about my business than me. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I know everything that's wrong, everything that's right. I've experienced it all. Right? Yep. Totally. If, if if someone's willing to pay me significantly more than I believe it's worth today, I need to then at least think about it and say, okay, what do I get from this? Does it de-risk my profile? Right. Like, do I have all of my wealth tied up in one private company? Like those
1: sort of questions need to start happening. Where'd you go find the answers to those? Because if you got an offer and it was Citrix, right? So yeah. So you're getting this offer, you're obviously making a, a dent, you're making competitors pissed off. I mean, it's only my thought, because I'm just go, I'm teleporting myself back in, because like when you started the business right around when I uh, was in the family business doing copiers, manage IT. So we're like bumping into the service providers, doing what you're doing in the telecom space. That's when like all these cloud hosted telecom providers before RingCentral. So like the explosion and growth in the industry, I totally saw. So Obviously, you're making people upset that are your bigger. I, mean, I
2: don't think Ring Central liked us all that much, right? Like <laughs> that's
1: so awesome, man. <laughs> they,
2: they had raised a ton of money and ultimately went public. Um, and and good for them. like I think that's great. But you have to step back and look at that and say, okay, like that was a success, right? Who is it a success for, right? Like I know for sure that as founders, we walked away with more than the ring Central founders. Right. So if I'm looking at it from a founder's perspective, was that a success? I don't know. Right. Like, I don't know what their metrics were. I don't know what they were going for. I don't know all that stuff. But it definitely was a success for VCs. Right. So they made a lot of
1: money. So you're 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 tapping into a super interesting topic that I love is it kind of ties back to your happiness. And we're talking about money and all this stuff that's like in one big blender. Right. So you're definitely, you know, you were solving for dollar amounts from what, you know, when you're saying that you were selling, but now you're, then you had to go resolve for happy. So I want to hear, like, if you were to go back to yourself after you got that offer, that first offer and you are and you were to look at yourself and then I'd say, okay, David, here's the shit you have to think about now. What are some of the things besides just the, the normal valuation that you were probably marching towards? I mean, like if I, if you want the honest answer, I don't think any
2: of that changes, right? Like, okay. that's awesome. When you're when you're in that state, right? All of your wealth is tied up in one private company. The only metric you can really target is valuation or dollars out, right? Like, there is not another one to optimize around if you're looking at a success metric, right? I think you get the
1: privilege to then look at other things after that. So, okay. I- I agree with you to a certain extent. I'm curious, like, what if you're financially free, right? So, like, you you know, you dropped a couple of figures, and you know, using the four percent and all that kind of basic stuff. Let's say, okay, Dave, you walk away, you net five million bucks, or you could literally put a loan on your own company, pull five million dollars out, and now you're financially free. Technically, from a wealth perspective, does your does your answer change at all?
2: It, it doesn't, right? Because I think that you know the the fi- the, the success metric right, is highly tied to the dollar figure, and it happens to be around exits, right? Like, no one talks about or looks at as, like, David is a success because he's financially independent, right? Like, so if you are targeting that, which from a young age was very important to me, right, to prove to other people I could be successful, right, I don't know of another metric in our, you know, kind of culture and society that points to that, right?
1: Yep. It's, it's so interesting because uh, just a little context behind some of the questions is, I don't know how familiar you are with ESOPs. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, so like my partner did one. So like you could literally liquidate your financial asset, make the millions and millions of dollars, but keep running the company. You know, you got a little bit of money tied into the business for seller's notes, but, you know, depending on the deal structure of the sale, you're going to have those different components regardless. And it's just crazy to me as I watch. It's not that like one's right or the wrong, or one's options better than the other. It's just there are options, and most people don't know how the variables are impacted. Yeah. And so I don't know. Like, did you look at like when you got that first offer, did you go start exploring different options at all, or no. no? I mean, the offer was so large that you
2: know that you don't really have to explore those other options, right? It's a kind of yes or no. Do we do this, right? And and the no part of it was oh, okay. We're gonna keep running this right? Like there was no other, you know, uh, scenario, right? Because we didn't need the money, right? Like that we lived the life we wanted.
1: What how else? many times did they come back to you guys?
2: How many times will come back?
1: How many, ta- how many times did the buyer or situation? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: I mean, a, a number of times,
1: right? <laughs> um, but I think what's more interesting is
2: like, they first reached out as like discovery, right? They were clearly interested. We said, look, it's just not a good time. Like we know what we're going to do. We 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 have a clear path to it. We have systems, processes, and people to do it. Like it's just not a good time, right? And they they accepted that and said, okay, you know, we'll come, we'll talk to you later. I said, okay. I think they came back about six months later. We blew out all of our goals. So we did better (laughs) than ever. And they they said they've acquired like 150 companies. They're like, no one has ever said, I'm gonna do X and then actually done X. So then they were more interested. They're like, wait a second, like these guys actually have an operatable business. It's not just that, you know, we have a reason to buy this and we can cross sell and we can do other stuff.
1: Like this is a business that is truly operational. So what, what did the, what happened with you and your, your, did you have a partner at the time? I have one partner, yeah. Yeah, that's what what I I gathered. Um, What was the conversation when you said, okay, this is the real deal now, like walk us through the process. Like, what did you guys start to do? And like, how did the attention and energy get focused into the deal?
2: So I mean a lot of it had to do with the executive team like we we relied a lot on the executive team for their expertise and opinion so this wasn't like me and my found my co-founder like doing it on our own like mm-hmm. this was a very open thing right um, okay. personal size of company it had to be open to our executive team like they they had to be involved right and that that group quickly grew as due diligence started and such but you know we said to them like look like as an executive team like where do you think this sits right like you have vested interest like All of those questions. Right. And it just became increasingly clear that there was alignment around not only valuation, but also company. Right. So they were going to keep the grasshopper brand that was important to us. Right. They were going to keep the team, the the office, like those things were important to us. Right. So as we started to go down the list, things aligned more and more. And then obviously there was a lot of cross sell upsell opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. They owned go to meeting, go to my PC, you know, all that stuff. They there was a lot of things
1: that could be sold to the same group of people. Mm-hmm. Did you did your team have any phantom stock or options or anything like that that allowed you the comfort to be able to talk to them about that stuff?
2: Yeah, so they did. Um, they had some phantom stock. Um, we gave them far more in the transaction than what was on paper. Um, so we carved out a significant amount of the transaction um, to the executive team and the team as a whole, even though not everyone had options or, you know, phantom options or whatever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because our promise to them and the whole team was always like, no matter what's on paper, we'll always do what's right. And we have tried very hard to do that, right? And I think that, you know, ultimately, the executive team had already been aligned around this idea prior in that it's a hard thing. Like executive team says, I should get paid this, you're getting paid that. Like the, like the executive team was had far more salary than I had. Right. Far more.
1: Uh, Yeah.
2: Right. But so my message then was always like, look, you tell me what you should get paid. You show me how the business pays it. And I'm not asking any questions. Right. You be fair. i be fair. We move on. Right. And, and I think that ultimately that was the right thing to do these weren't low paid executives, you know, $280,000, $350,000 people.
1: Mm -hmm. So was it just, you just entertained that one offer? Did you go into an LOI, exclusive LOI, and then uh, the cavity search? Or (laughs) what was the the deal?
2: We went into an exclusive LOI. Like, I, I think that there's a false narrative around this, you know, it needs to be competitive thing, right? Like, yeah, we hear about the competitive, you know, stuff like, Cisco and Microsoft bid against each other and the price quadrupled. Yeah. That happens like 1% of the time, right? Like most of the time, this is how a transaction happens. and we didn't want to mess around. We had no interest in selling, right? So we could always not sell, right? So it wasn't like we had to go through a process. We also, you know, while we engaged an investment bank to manage the process, we negotiated that rate far down because we didn't want them to run a competitive process. We right. wanted them to run a due diligence process, right? So now we've saved money there. And I think ultimately what happened is like the LOI to the purchase and sale, there was no deduction, there was no changes, right? None of that crap happened, right? We didn't increase it obviously because we didn't go try to get bids. But I think the inverse of getting bids is far more common than what you think you're gonna get, right? More likely,
1: price gets depressed yeah. than it gets increased during a process. Well, I think you, yeah, and I, and to, a couple of comments on that is like the fact that you had a walk, you had the ability to walk away because you had a cash flow machine that was funding itself. You don't need competitive bids because that's your competitive bid. You just look out five years and say, look at what I make as an individual <laughs> if I stay here. You don't need five other people with price tags that is going to push the price up. You just just don't need it. <laughs> So was there anything in the due diligence process that shocked you that either detracted value or added value that either you wanted to, and that was intentional or it surprised you? Yeah. I
2: mean, I think my biggest learning in the whole process was something one of the investment bankers said to us um, early on. He's like, look, you need to understand how this works. You're working with a big company. Every call, every email, every communication is a go, no go communication right? Like deals fall apart for no reason, right? Who knows why, right? So the, the goal is to progress at a quick enough pace that everyone is comfortable, but probably at a pace that's a little uncomfortable, right? To, to, to push that through because every day delayed, right, is a risk. And I mean, this proved out, right? Like within, I want to say like 18 days of the close, an activist investor Became very publicly, you know, communicative and said uh Citrix should sell all of their cloud computing stuff, uh, anything that's SaaS, right? So now the board has had, you know, like all of these things happen.
1: That's 18 days. You just never know what's gonna happen. I don't know if you've uh familiar with the word, uh Sonny Vanderbeck um, been on the show a couple of times and uh he was gonna sell his company back in like the early 2000s, billion dollar sale. And uh It was HP came in, but ComCat, uh, ComPack was going to buy him and literally they were going to close the deal, David. And uh, ComPack was bought by HP two days before their close for a billion dollars. (laughs) Like just poof, the whole thing just disappeared. You're like, he's just like, you got to be kidding me. So like in your, in your negotiations in the, in the uh, due diligence, was there anything like for the deal structure, you like, I don't know how the deal starts, I don't know what numbers you're comfortable sharing, but like percentages of like, was it? Escrow earnouts, employment contracts, stuff that you liked, didn't like, I'm just kind of curious on your take on it.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was it, for, from a founder's perspective, it was quite friendly. Um, Escrow was low. Um, I think the total escrow amount was like five or 8% or something, maybe okay. yeah. 10% at the most. I don't, I don't remember. Um, there was a small amount that was a little bit longer um, because of you know uh, a tax uh, specific thing. All of the escrow was returned. so that's good, right? <laughs> that's <is> good. <laughs> there, there was no employment contracts for us, and none of the exit price was dependent on uncom- unemployment, but there was a, an extra amount made available to the executive team over one, two, and three year periods as you know compensation to them to stay around which I think is a far better thing, right? To making parts of the deal contingent and whatever, like you want to keep the team, that's fine. You give them incentives to do it.
1: So with your with some context now that 18 days after you guys sell, you're getting pressure to get rid of cloud computing stuff. And you're tying into like, what is your purpose after this, David? And I'm, I'm curious, you know, this is, dude, it's a wild ride, isn't it? And like, you're, it's like, all of a sudden I've given the analogies, like you just, all of a sudden it's like, you see the zeros and the ones in the matrix. Like I was playing this game and then you realize that there's a whole different three dimensional game going on. Like, how did you go through this process of trying to figure out who you were, what you want to do? I mean, it's an interesting deal.
2: Yeah. So for me, I I, I took a year and did a bunch of stuff, right? Like lots of business things too. Like I started companies I did, but I didn't invest 100% of my time into anything. But really the, the, the thing that returned the most for me was learning, right? Like I always had this habit of every quarter and just easy enough because I wanted to do a, you know, based on a quarter, but always learn something new, right? Like maybe it's golf, maybe it's swimming better. Like I don't care what it is, right? But learn something new. So I kind of took that up after the sale and just really invested in that. Like like I said, like I, I got really into yoga and I decided, well, I'm going once a day and I like it. So I'm gonna do 200 hour teacher training, right? Like, I, like what are those things that I can advance myself and learn about um, with no goal other than learning, right? And I think that freedom is what allowed me to kind of change
1: perspective. Did you ever have any, when someone said, hey, David, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> I still struggle with that um I don't I don't know how
2: to answer it probably made some poor investments because of it like in a restaurant or you know things like that right even though people said don't do that but yeah I mean I, I still don't know how to answer that question because you know part of some people look at me and say, well David's retired well that's not true. some people look at me and say well David runs too many businesses that's not true right like I, so I don't have a good answer other than you know what? I stick to my routine. I go to the gym every day. Um, I go to work every day. I love what I do. And it doesn't really matter what the thing is I'm doing during the day.
1: How long did it take you to, to get to that spot? Um, it probably took me that whole year. Yeah. It's, uh, um, there was a gentleman that wasn't my shirt. He's, he meditated for like 10 months straight. (laughs) He just went to, went and like, he would literally do like eight hour day meditation. And so like, as you, think about like the landscape of entrepreneurs these days, like what do you think could get people like, are you think, do you think people are thinking like this, like long-term value creation, or do you think that there's like some pull gravitational pull to like bad behaviors with these VCs that are just burning cash and not really worried about the economics. I'm just kind of curious on your take on now that you've been through this, people are looking to you as like a mentor. What advice are you giving people?
2: Yeah. So I actually have kind of a contrarian view in that, like, I don't think that the pull towards, you know, uh, sale valuation and those success metrics is bad, right? Like I would not go back and say, David, you should think more about happiness when you're 22 and building this business. No. Right. Um, I I think that those things are actually fine. Um, it's part of that arch of a journey. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and it needs to happen right? So I I wouldn't change anything. The advice that I give to people though is actually quite simple. Like just go do something, right? Like lots of people talk about lots of things and the people who talk about stuff never get anything done. The people who do things, even if it's tiny steps forward again and again, they are, they're the ones who win. So like I I will, I refuse to look at business plans that don't have any product or customers or whatever. Like, no, not interested. (laughs) It might be the greatest idea in the world, you might be the greatest person in the world, an operator, but just not interesting to even have a conversation about. If you've taken that first step, I'll talk about it.
1: So, what inter- Like, what interests you for deals? For like types of companies or founders or opportunities? Like, what what gets you excited?
2: Yeah. So that that's probably an even more limiting filter, which is I, I only will today invest in companies doing over a million dollars a year in revenue, break even or profitable, right? So now this filter has brought it very small. (laughs) But those are the people that I like working with, right? And, you know, in general, I like working with companies even larger, right? So kind of 5 million plus, because I can actually use my skills of scaling and team and executive team and all those things much more effectively than trying to help someone get from, you know, half a million to a million.
1: So because you mentioned routine quite a few times, and I'm a Uh, insane uh, uh addict to routine I just gotta ask man like what is a typical day and week look like for you now
2: <laughs> yeah so so I, I think routine for me is b- broken into two areas one is like actual physical routine and then calendaring right so physical routine I take my my daughter to uh, school every morning uh at 7 30 roughly 7 45 um, I go from there to the gym uh, I shower at the gym even if I don't work out at the gym I always go to the gym and shower there uh, and I and it's on my calendar, like yoga, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., shower, you know, such. That, that's my routine every day, including Saturdays and Sundays. Um, so I, I stick to that. Then my routine for the rest of the day is I work until call it 5 or 6 p.m. when I go home. And within that block of work time, that's highly structured, but changes a lot, mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it is. And I, like, and we don't have, it's not for this podcast, but it's just interesting as we, as I've been diving, you know, every, there's all this human optimization and stuff that every a lot of people are out there. But it's like truly, there was this woman that I had in the show. She was like, "Time management's bullshit. There's 168 hours a week. That's it. You can't manage it. It either is the, it comes and goes." <laughs> and I was just like, and she goes, "We need we need to focus on energy management and then the leverage of those activities in those hours, and then do those things produce revenue and profit." I was just like, such an interesting. Paradigm shift. They're like, "Hey, like you with that time, you need to do highly leveraged activities."
2: Well, and I think within that comment too is something that I talk to people about all the time. Like people are like, "Well, I need more time. I couldn't get enough done." Like those types of conversations. I'm like, "Okay, sounds good. Um, let's like break this down a little bit. How long did you watch Netflix last night?" Oh, well, after dinner, I watched Netflix for three and a half hours. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, okay, I just bought you three and a half hours, right? Like, so now it's just about how you use your time, not that you need more time. right? like, I go to bed early, which also means I wake up early. That to me is the easiest possible hack. Like starting work at 5 a.m. means no one's bothering me. No one's distracting me. I can get a tremendous amount done before other people are even doing anything,
1: right? I love it. So then with, the, with that block of time for the, for the business stuff, What are the opportunities that you see coming down the pipe? Is there things you now with this, you know, with COVID accelerating all these trends that we're already going, is there things that you're getting excited about? Look, I mean, we've been on these things
2: for a long time, right? So we've been doing recurring revenue SaaS businesses like, yeah, that's accelerated already doing that. We're doing e-commerce, right? Okay. Accelerated already doing that. So, I mean, for, for us, it's much more about proof that some of the other things we believed in make a lot of sense. Like our teams have been remote for more than a decade. Mm-hmm. right? Now, people before are like, ah, oh, you can't do that. Oh, really? Can't do that, right? Now, all of a sudden, it's much more interesting. and Everyone can do it, right? So, I think things like that have become interesting. I think there's a lot of opportunity around the change in both work patterns and life patterns, mm-hmm. right? So, if that's people like leaving big cities. So, I actually had an argument with someone recently like, oh, everyone hates cities now. I'm like, no. I, I think what people want Are medium-sized cities, not large cities, right? Like I think that's the statement that's being made in terms of a trend. If I was interested in like what's happening next, Mm -hmm. right? Like people aren't moving to a farm in the middle of nowhere by themselves. (laughs) Like, yes, some people do. I get it, but like that's not what people are saying. Is I want a place that I can walk around and enjoy,
1: but is not packed with so many people that is New York and ten times more expensive than everywhere else, right? Like, yeah, I think there's an expense issue to it as well. Yeah, yeah. Man, this has been a lot of fun. You know, two last questions is what does the word intentional mean to you? So that's a a great, great
2: question. Um, For me, it means being present, right? So intentional in thought, intentional in,
1: you know, focus, listening, all of those things. It it all comes back to being present. And then uh, where can everybody find you? And if they want to reach out or start following you?
2: Yeah. So davidhauser.com. Um, I have a weekly newsletter um, that I talk about usually three to four topics that are on my mind, health, wellness, wealth, you know, entrepreneurship, business, you know, all those things. A uh, short email that I send out once a week. Um, that's usually the best way to find me. And I, I reply to everyone that sends me a message, really.
1: David, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that episode with David. Here's my big takeaway. If you know your numbers, which means your lifetime value of a customer, the margins that come with it, how that impacts the overall value of your business, you can get laser focused in spending money in the right areas that bring in customers that are profitable and have a good lifetime value of a customer that increases the value of your business. So you can disrupt your industry. You can grow a more valuable company and create more choices long-term. You have to know your numbers in order to build a plan that is sustainable and creates more value. You have to understand where those numbers fit into your business model, into the lifetime value of your customer and how much you can spend to acquire that customer. If you want to know more about numbers and what creates value, go check out the intentional growth online course, Arcona.io. Go to the education tab. If you got any questions, check out the curriculum or reach out to us. We'd be happy to chat. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.